Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game production. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host, Kevin Kernan. This is our flagship production, Coaching Kernan Podcast. This is episode 133. Um, before we introduce our guests and get Kevin to share a little bit about his week this past week with Ball 9, just want to thank our over 13,000 subscribers now. We hit that mark last week. Uh, remember to download, listen, like, subscribe, so we continue to get the credit for it and the support will keep rolling in. We'll keep giving you these great shows. Follow us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. And you can engage us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Again, every morning I do a Facebook post to answer one of the questions. We had 360 questions this morning after I put the promo out of our guest last night. Uh, so that sparked a lot of questions today. So I did answer one this morning and we'll get back to the rest of them this afternoon. But with that, uh, Kevin, welcome back to the show here today. And you had a busy week with uh, with your trips down in Florida. Talk to some great people, Buck, Dusty. So I saw our friend Dave Trembling down there and our guest today. So um, what kind of things were turning down there in spring training? Yeah, it's great to see, uh, you know, great to go see spring training. And it's the it's the best time of year, without a doubt. Everybody's relaxed. Um, and, and again, you know what I do, been around a long time. So one of my priorities was to speak to Dusty and Buck, and not long, you know, it doesn't take long to get great quotes, great stuff. Both, both men were happy to see me, uh, haven't seen me in a while. Um, and, and they both talked about the value of experience and how important it is to the game. And they both talked about how they're not shy of analytics. Please don't put them in that category. And I do think, uh, you know, I do think the pendulum is swinging ever, ever, ever so slowly, but it, it was a great week. But most of all, I was uh, excited to see uh, some old friends, writing friends. There's not that many of us around anymore. And that gets us to our guest today, who I am thrilled to have. And this will be special because he's got such great stories and a great love for baseball. Oh, without question. Uh, and I'm going to keep our preamble short today because anybody that doesn't know our guest needs to climb back into their cave and, and come back at a later date. But um, our guest today, Tim Kirchin, Baseball Writer, Association of America, Career Excellence Award, Hall of Famer. Um, Tim, welcome to the show today. Almost 50 years in baseball, covering it at, at, at its peak. You've uh, seen so much. Um, we're excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Dave. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time with Buck and Dusty in spring training this year. Uh -huh. Buck put me in his golf cart and drove me all around the complex to show me all the little things that were done to make the Port St. Lucie complex better. You know, a new batter's eye, you know, took the bullpens off the field. Yeah. Typical Buckshow Walter never misses a detail, including there's a little putting green beyond the center field fence for Jeff McNeil, who's like the best golfer, he and Aaron Hicks in the major league. So this is, this was just a fascinating little tour of the ballpark from Buck. And Dusty, of course, <laughs> made me laugh again. I somehow, you know, we asked him, like, who have you met since you or who called you after you won the World Series last year? And this was the list. He said, well, I got a call from Sandy Koufax. I got a call from Barack Obama and Snoop Dogg. I maintain that's the craziest threesome in the history of threesomes. Koufax, President Obama, 
and Snoop Dogg. So I asked him, how do you know Snoop Dogg? And he goes, well, apparently when I was playing for the Dodgers, I was his favorite player when he was growing up. So that's the Snoop Dogg connection. So I asked him, how do you know President Obama? He said, well, from politics, when I you know, when I was the manager of the Cubs in Chicago. So he said a few years ago, he said, President Obama called me on the phone. And I thought it was my friends like making fun, like this can't be the president. So he said, this isn't the president called me. Who are you? And President Obama said, it's me, President Obama. And Dusty said, how'd you get my number? And President Obama said, I'm the president of the United States. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. That, that's what Timmy does. He brings the, the game to life in so many ways. And and and, and as you know, Dave, for, for us who love the game, we love to read and, and listen to Tim and the sanity he brings to ESPN. When, and I'll share this with you, Tim. When you signed on this morning at 830 and you started talking to me through the computer, my entire house stood up at attention because they thought the, the sports center was, they thought they were on TV. My wife ran in. She's like, I recognize that voice. So I mean, you draw attention uh, in, a, in a really good way, and you've been an icon for baseball. And we certainly appreciate you. Uh, thank you very much. And it was great to see Kevin in spring training because Kevin and I are a couple of old baseball beat writers. That's what I am at heart. That's what Kevin mm-hmm. still is at heart. To me, the best job I've ever had and by far the hardest job I've ever had was being a beat guy for a newspaper. I did that for 10 years. It nearly killed me and I loved every second of it because as we know, Kevin, when you've been on the beat, you've been in the jungle, especially when you're covering the beat in New York like you did and not to mention San Diego and other places. But once you've done that, you can pretty much do almost anything else in this business because the beat writer learns how to write quickly, how to write on deadline, how to do stories, how to deal with people. It was the best starting point in my career. I I wouldn't change it for anything because once you're a beat writer, you can learn an awful lot in a short amount of time. Yeah, let me jump in there real quick because I I spoke at a couple of schools last week and I pointed that out. And you also, here's the important thing, Tim. You got to show up the next day, whether you're critical or whatever, and, and you got to you got to take the heat. And uh, so, so I know one thing: uh, players love talking to you because you find the little nuggets. Uh, just just give us some examples of that because that's who you are. Well, I love the Nuggets, Kevin. I've always loved the Nuggets since I was a little kid. I mean, when I was, I would come up with the all food team, the all money team when I was in the sixth grade. You know, I would go through all the rosters, think about all my, all the players. Those are things that just have appealed to me. But I'm always just fascinated by these amazing coincidences, if I want to call them, in major league games. For instance, Prince Fielder hit 319 home runs in his career, which is exactly as many as his father hit, 319. What are the odds of that, that a father-son duo each hit exactly the same number of home runs? I mean, Dennis Eckersley picked off Kenny Williams in a game once, and then he went three and a half years without picking off anyone, and then he picked off Kenny Williams again. I mean, that's impossible that that could happen. It's impossible that Stan Musial had exactly Mm -hmm. as many hits at home as he did on the road in his spectacular career. These are the things that pop up every single day. And if you're watching closely enough, 
They hit you right in the face if you're watching closely enough. And that's why I read the box scores religiously every morning at six o'clock with a Diet Mountain Dew in my hand. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do is to see who got three hits last night and scour those box scores to see if anybody did anything really unusual. And I'm still looking every day, strange peculiar man that I am. I look every day for what I call the reverse triple-double, a guy who struck out twice in a game, grounded into two double plays in a game, and made two errors in the same game. The reverse triple-double. Kurt Bavacqua, your favorite, Kevin, from San Diego days, did that in 1978. And according to the Elias Sports Bureau, that's the only time they can find anyone who made two errors grounded in two double plays and struck out twice in the same game. It's pathetic that I look for stuff like that, but that's the kind of little thing that gets my day going. Uh, you had a little ritual you did for a while too, didn't you, where you, you cut out the box scores and kept them in a, a journal of sorts? Yes, I did that, Dave, every day. And again, this is also pathetic. I did that every day for 20 years, and I never missed a day. Like I never forgot to do it one day. And then I had to do two days the next day. It's a streak. I think we can all agree is way more impressive than anything done by Cal Ripken Jr. But my thought always was, if I have all the box scores in my box score book, and I'm say flying across the country pre-internet, and I'm going to see the Padres, and I haven't seen them in a month and a half, and I need to know how are they working their bullpen, what's the platoon like at second base. I can go through on that plane ride every box score of the Padres, and those are the kind of things that really kept me going all those years. And I only quit because um, the box scores were, were so hard to find in our daily newspapers anymore. It took me more time to find every box score. So after 20 years, I finally had to give it up. I should have given it up the night that I got out of bed at 11.45 at night. And I realized, oh my God, I forgot to do my box score book. So I got out of bed. My wife looks at me. She knows exactly what I'm doing. I run into my office. I cut out my box scores. I come back to bed and she looks at me as if to say, how could I have married such an unfathomable geek? Well, that, that's what I am, but it worked for me. And that's all that matters. Well, you mentioned a streak uh, and mentioned Cal Ripken kind of segues into a question I wanted to ask you. I have a basketball background. I coached collegiately for over 20 years. I love basketball. I got a chance to see video of you. And I know you had a storied history with Cal playing basketball in Cal Ripken's private gym. Can you share, share some stories about that, those experiences? Yeah, well, it didn't start out in the private gym. I just ended up accidentally playing in the same game as him. And it's a raging conflict of interest. Kevin knows that you shouldn't be socializing in any way with a player in the offseason. But I did because it was basketball. And I learned so much about him playing in this dingy, dinky little gym because, you know, it's a five-on-five pickup game. There are it's only five, 10 guys playing. So if you lose the game, you get to play the next day. We all know if you, if you lose and you have to sit, you'll do anything to stay on the court. Well, Ripken, Ripken once at 14 to 14, game is straight to 15, literally called a timeout and pulled his team off the court in order to set up a play to score the final basket so they could win. They missed the shot. We got the rebound and we scored. And he was furious. 
that they had lost the smallest pickup game you can possibly imagine. That's who he was. And here's what he used to do. And both of you can appreciate this. If I was on the other team and his man that he was guarding was a little bit late getting down on offense, he enjoyed picking me up at the end line and guarding me from end line to end line. He is a foot taller than me. He weighs 100 pounds more than I do. And he enjoyed harassing me all the way down the court. Finally, after an entire game of this, I finally just said, would you please leave me alone? Would you please stop trying for one second? And he said, no, because that's who he was. He had to win the game. The game had to be played properly. It was amazing. And then I did play a couple times in the big gym. Typically, he told me, come on Thursday night, because I was writing a story about it for ESPN, the magazine. So he says, come on Thursday night. That's the A game night. So I get there and LeBradford Smith, who had scored like 36 points against Jordan once in an NBA game, is playing in this game, okay? Wow. And I'm 45 years old, and I'm guarding a guy who had scored like 2,500 points for his Division II team, and he's like 22 years old. So I, I get absolutely clobbered because I'm 45, and these guys are way younger than me and way better than me. So the point is, we play the games, and my team goes oh and nine, in part because I can't guard this guy. He's 25 years younger than me, and he's great. So my team goes 0-9. Like 10 years later, Rick Sutcliffe asked Ripken one day on the field in Tampa Bay, he says, don't tell me that Tim was good enough to play in those games with you guys. And Ripken said 10 years later, he said, yeah, Tim was good enough to play in our games. And the last time he played, his team went 0-9. I said to Ripken, how could you possibly remember a random night from 10 years ago when my team went 0-9? And he looked at me, he goes, how could I forget it? That's who he is. Never forgets anything about whatever he's doing. As analytical a guy as I've ever met. Yeah, that's so good, Tim. I mean, uh, and that's that's what you bring to the writing. And and also with the box scores, uh, just so Dave understands too, Tim was one of those guys who became kind of, you didn't want to bother Elias Sports Bureau all the time. So Tim brought his own basically library with him on every road trip. So he's got the baseball encyclopedia, all that stuff, uh, you know, so he could do his own research. And when you do your own research, you find out the truth. Uh, he also had a great background in the Dallas Morning News as well. I mean, we can go to all the different papers, Baltimore Sun, things like that. But I can't, you know, we, we, when you're telling stories, you have to tell us the uh, Ron Meyer story from Dallas Morning News. <laughs> All right. So it was it was uh, January 1982. I had just gotten to Dallas to take a job at the Morning News. And I'd been in town about a week when we got a tip that Ron Meyer, the football coach at SMU, was going to be the next football coach of the New England Patriots. So this was a gigantic story in town, but all of our football writers were traveling. So my boss said, Tim, you need to do this story. So they gave me Ron Meyer's phone number. I called him at home like 50 times. The phone was clearly off the hook. And my boss said, Tim, 
you have to go to his house. Now, remember, I'd been in town for about a week, so I didn't even know how to get to my house, let alone his house. And and I didn't know Rod Meyer from Oscar Meyer. So I go out. It's like nine o'clock at night. I get to his house about 930. I knock on the front door and he comes to the front door. Now, remember, this is 1982. I was looking a lot younger then than I do today. And if it's possible, I was even smaller then than I am today. So I knock on the door and I say, hi, I'm Tim Kirkjian with the Dallas Morning News. And he goes, oh, OK, how much do we owe you this month? So <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry, but I did have to explain to him, I'm not the paper boy. I'm actually a real reporter at a real newspaper, and I've come to ask you some questions. So he invites me in. All of his assistant coaches are there. Of course, I have no idea who they are because I've never covered an SMU football game. So he lies to me on every question. No, I'm not going to the Patriots. No, I haven't interviewed there. So I go back to my apartment to write the story and call it in. And I get a call like five minutes later from Ron Meyer. And he says, you're a competitor from the other newspaper. The Dallas Times Herald just showed up and I told him the truth. So I didn't want to get you in trouble the first week on the job. So here's the real truth to the questions you asked. So I got that story in the paper the next day because he felt so bad that he had lied to me. He called me back and I got the story in the paper. But that, frankly, was the day I decided I'm not going to go chasing around college football coaches I've never met in my life. In the middle of the night, I need to get back full, full time to baseball which I did a couple months later. It was amazing. And that was one of the most competitive newspaper markets in the world at the time. So people have to understand that that would have been quite, you know, that would have been a bad start for your Dallas career. Right. We know, Kevin, what that what that competition was like when you miss a story. I can still feel the, the the terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach when I woke up in the morning and realized somebody had a story that I didn't have. It was the worst feeling ever. And I worked every single day to make sure that didn't happen again. And sometimes it did. But man, that was a defeat of all defeats. Well, that, that's what kept us going. And when when I was on a beat with guys like Nightingale and stuff like that, you know, we we have we take our turns. And if you got beat, you got beat back then for twenty four hours. Basically, it was right. no uh, you know updating instantly on the internet. No such right. thing. Now, now so, you get beat on a story. You get beat by you know three minutes. Before we used to get beat by twenty four hours, and you would have to agonize until you could write the follow up story. Oh, it was torture. But again, that's what made the job so good. It was so competitive. And if you weren't up for the competition, you weren't going to be a very good beat writer. So, so you go from Ryan Meyer thinking you're, the, he's, you're his paper boy to eventually a career in baseball, you know, stem, you know, just incredible. You get the Career Excellence Award. You're at the Hall of Fame. And guys like Reggie, Jim Cott, Robin Yout, Molitor, Bench show up for your little speech. And then, uh, of course, there's the bench moment at the Atasaga Hotel where you're sitting there looking at the lake. Um, Reflect on some of that. Yeah, well, the day after I won the award, so that's December 8th, 2021, Johnny Bench called me at my house at 8.30 in the morning. This was amazing. And he said, Tim, congratulations. Welcome to the club. 
You're one of us now. Now, Kevin, Dave, let's be clear here. I'm not one of them. I'm not in their club. Those are Hall of Fame players. I'm just a dinky little writer. But the same idea was the greatest catcher of all time called me at home to congratulate me. And then his voice got very soft and he said very poignantly, he said, Tim, you know, it's moments like this that take you back to Little League. And I was just about ready to cry again wow. when he said, and let's face it, Tim, you could still fit into a Little League uniform. <laughs> so Johnny is the greatest. As well, you that's know, clubhouse Kevin. humor, too. That's clubhouse humor. Of course humor. it is. Of that's, course that's why it they is. take you in. Yep. This is, right. This, is, this means he likes me that he can make fun of me. So after I make my speech on Saturday, this was amazing, I must say. I go back to the Otisaga Hotel which overlooks the most spectacular lake you've ever seen. And Johnny Bench comes up to me and says, come with me. He takes me out onto the veranda. There's nobody on the veranda except for me and him. And he says to me, I want you to sit down here and I want you to look at that lake. I don't want you to say a word for one minute. I want you to look at that lake. I want you to remember where you are how you got here, and how many people helped get you here. And I sat next to Johnny Bench looking at that lake, and I teared up again because the greatest catcher of all time took the time to do that for me. He did that for all players who make it to the Hall of Fame for the first time. That's one of Johnny's gifts is he makes sure everyone understands where they are and how they got there. But this time he did it for a baseball writer. And I, I can't even begin to tell you how powerful that was. And then, and then the next day for the real induction, I am on a bus and I'm going over to the induction. And the only people are on the hall of, on the bus with me are Hall of Famers. It's like, who doesn't belong on this bus? The seat next to me was open. And this very regal, elegant looking gentleman looked at me and said, can I sit next to you? And it was Sandy Koufax. Wow. So I rode next to Sandy Koufax for 15 minutes. And you guys can appreciate this. Sandy can be a little prickly if you ask yes. the wrong question, yes. even on the bus going to the Hall of Fame. So I looked at him and you guys know how much I love basketball. So I took, I called an audible here and I said to Sandy Koufax on the bus, I said, when you were at the University of Cincinnati, could you dunk it easily? And now his eyes lit up and he said, yeah, I could dunk it easily. And then he showed me those legendarily large hands, which we all know about. And he said, look how big my hands are. And then he showed me his arms and he said, what people don't know is the sleeve length on my shirt is 37 inches. I have tremendously long arms. So he said, even though I was only six feet tall, I could jump. I got these giant hands and I got these incredibly long arms. And he said, I could dunk it easily. And we talked about basketball only for 15 minutes on the ride over to the induction at the Baseball Hall of Fame. It was one of the great conversations I've ever had with anyone, and it happened to be with Sandy Koufax. That's a, that's a fantastic story. And, of course, knowing Sandy, knowing Guy Conti, Sandy, you know, I don't know if he still does it, but up until a few years ago, 
down when he lived in Florida, he would regularly go to the high school base uh, basketball games in that area where he lived over by uh, Port St. Lucie, Vero Beach. And um, and so he loves the game of basketball and 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 getting that little story shows you so much about Sandy Koufax. And, that, and that's what you do best. And I just thought of this, Tim, uh, you know, when you're sitting there reflecting on the lake and stuff like that. You, you know, uh, you got to think back to your past. You know, you you went to Walter Johnson High School. So obviously it was baseball somehow was in your future. But also your Armenian heritage. The, the, what, what does that mean to you, too, with with that situation? Yeah, my, my father's family is Armenian. So I'm half Armenian. My mother was born in England. So I grew up uh, with a father who loved the game and, by the way, was a really good player. So he taught all three of his boys how to play the game, how to love the game. He gave us a great feel for the game. My two older brothers are in the Hall of Fame for baseball at Catholic University. And yes, I mean, I don't know much about Armenian heritage, unfortunately, but every summer we would go to Watertown, Mass., where my grandmother lived and a bunch of my relatives lived. And we would spend two weeks there every summer and we'd go to Red Sox games and everything else. So that's where I learned a little bit about my Armenian heritage. And I hesitate to tell you this, but I, a year and a half ago, I went into the Armenian sports Hall of Fame. Uh, and awesome. it was it was amazing. Like eight of us went in and my little thing and my speech, by the way, they told me, we'll need you to make a speech, but let's keep it to maybe 30 seconds. 30 seconds. <laughs> I said, I can do that. Don't worry. But I was introduced in between Garo Yepremian, who was the great field goal <laughs> kicker for the Miami Do- Dolphins. And Era Parsegian. So wow. it was Yepremian, Kirkjian, and Era Parsegian. It was a it was a wonderful night. It was so beautifully done. I had so much fun. It's like every person in the room was Armenian. And we all looked the same, especially, especially <laughs> the men, you know? We all have big noses and dark eyes and dark hair and we're little. I mean, it was hilarious. I had the best time. And right now I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking at my Hall of Fame plaque that they gave me from the Armenian Sports Hall of Fame. So that that always meant a lot to me being Armenian. But I, I repeat, I should know a lot more about uh, the old country and my heritage. I'm just not very good at it. And that's a weakness uh, in me. Well, that, that's a wonderful story. And also the, uh, you know, talking about the past. God, and you and I lived it, you know, you get the phone calls from Peter Gammons on, you know, when I was covering the Padres or whatever. But you know, Jason Stark, Gammons, and Shaughnessy, what, what, what did those guys mean to you as a writer and, and that uh, kind of bridge you all crossed together? Right. Well, those those are my three favorite guys. I love so many baseball writers, but those are my three mentors in so many ways. When I went to work at the Washington Star right out of college, I was 21 years old, and Dan Shaughnessy was our baseball writer. So I watched every move that he made. He became my mentor. He showed me how to do the job. And while I was at the Star, the, the a Class A baseball team moved to Alexandria, Virginia. So I went to my boss. And again, I'm, I'm writing high school sports. I'm delivering coffee to the main writers. I'm taking race results over the phone. I'm doing whatever it takes to continue to try to move up here. But I went to my boss, Dave Smith, and I said, I would like to cover the Alexandria Dukes minor league team. Would would that be okay? And he said to me, 
He said, thank God you came in because I've tried to get anyone on the staff to cover that team and no one wanted to do it except for you. So that's where my real start began was covering minor league baseball, which was invaluable. But eventually that led me to be Dan Shaughnessy's backup. And that's where I learned how to be a baseball writer is following Dan Shaughnessy around. And he showed me the ropes in so many ways. So I'm going to tell a story with a bad word in it, but it needs to be told. Okay. And I hope I'm allowed to say a bad word, but Dan takes me to an Orioles game. I think it was in 79. It might've been 80, but I'm his backup now. And I'm going to be backing him up on the Orioles. So he takes me to Memorial Stadium. And he introduces me to Earl Weaver for the first time. Earl turns out to be one of my greatest friends, a guy that taught me more about baseball than anyone. But the first time I met him, Dan introduces me to Earl and says, Earl, this is Tim Kirkjian. He's going to be backing me up this year. Earl looks at me and says, fuck you, Tim, and walks away. And I almost started to cry. The best manager of that time, and for me, the th- one of the three greatest managers ever, <laughs> F-bombed me and walked away. Shaughnessy yeah. looks at me and goes, he sees he sees the pain on my face. He goes, don't worry. Er- Earl says that to all the people he likes. I said, likes? He just met me three seconds ago. That's ridiculous. So that was my introduction to Earl Weaver. And I repeat, I spent so much time around him for a two-year period. Then in 1986, I covered his team every day. So I saw him every day. He was so helpful in my life, but we got off to a bit of a rocky start and I'll never forget it. Well, that sounds much like my first intro to uh, Thurman Munson. Uh, So the only difference was he said it, what he said loud enough, so the whole clubhouse turned and looked. So then I had all that going on. So right, right. And just to finish, Kevin, after after Dan Shaughnessy, then I met Peter Gammons for the first time, and it was like he—I don't care what anyone says. For me, he's the greatest baseball writer of all time. He taught us all how to do this job: the beat, Sunday notes, daily notes, right and running. He taught us all how to do this. I was mesmerized by Peter, and he. He, he was so kind with his time and his information. I'll never forget, Kevin, you can appreciate this, especially as, as an old beat guy. My team, the Rangers, in 1984, whatever it was, they were making a trade. I could smell it. I could taste it. I knew they were making a trade that day, but I couldn't figure out who was going where. So I called Peter on the phone just to bounce an idea off of him. And I said, Peter, my team is making a trade today. And remember, Peter's covering the Red Sox, not the Rangers, the team that I'm covering. And he says, oh, yeah, you guys are getting Cliff Johnson later today from Toronto. And about two hours later, the Rangers got Cliff Johnson from Toronto. Peter knew more about my beat than I did. That's how plugged in he was at all things. I repeat, the greatest baseball writer ever. And Jason Stark, I met you know, later in my career, maybe late 80s, and he just had this beautiful way of finding arcane stats, weird information, and he taught me where to look for that stuff. So when I look back at the three people that influenced my career the most, I would say it has to be Dan, Peter, and Jason. Well, before I throw it to Dave, I got one other quick one because uh, I think I came up with the term seam heads way back in uh, <laughs> way back when. I because that's uh, you know I I like to throw out names, nicknames, and uh, 
that Seamhead's adventure for you has been a journey too, because of, uh, you know, you've run with it. And uh, what's that mean when you hear the word Seamhead's? Well, it's a, uh, it's a real compliment. In fact, I believe it's the best compliment you can pay to a baseball writer when you call him a seamhead. The great Mark Wicker, who's funnier than all of us, once came up with the three criteria in order to qualify to be a seamhead. A, you had to have covered an inter-squad game, which we all have. You had to have covered a winter ball game, which we all have. And you had to have covered a, a game in Bakersfield, where <laughs> where the manager spat, you know, tobacco juice all over your shoes. That's how you qualify to be a seam head. And I'm so proud of it, Kevin, uh, Dave. On Sunday mornings, this was about 10 years ago, I, I had my own half an hour and then later our television show. It was a Baseball Tonight spinoff. It was a Baseball Tonight, but it was called the Seam Head Edition. And I only had my writer friends on the show. So I would have Buster and Jason and Peter and guys like that on the show. And it was just an inside baseball seam head show that started at a half an hour, then ran for an hour. It's the favorite thing I've ever done in my 25 years at ESPN, not because I was the host of the show, but because all we did was talk about the inside part of the game, the nuances of the game, the stupid parts of the game, the funny parts of the game. It was the best hour I spent every week was was talking with my own baseball writer friends about this beautiful game. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, and I, yeah, I, I love the story about Sandy Koufax, that eloquent ride on the bus where basketball was the topic. Made me think of another bus ride you took with a, a different kind of baseball guy. Share a little bit about your Goodyear tour with John Crook. Oh, God. So I <laughs> Different stories, I'm sure. Oh, my God. And very few of them I can repeat here. Crookie is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And let's not forget, he, he wasn't some just little fat guy who could really hit. He was, first off, a great athlete, a great high school basketball player, a lifetime 300 hitter, and a guy who had a better look at the game than almost anyone I've ever met in uniform. Crookie once told me on one of those bus trips, he said, you know, in 80, 93, the year they went to the World Series, he needs, he said, you need to look this up. He said, I bet we only turned two five, four, three double plays that entire season because Dave Hollins, who played through anything, had a bad elbow and he couldn't make the throw to second without throwing a slider and maybe throwing it in a right field. So his arm only really worked when he threw from third to first. So he said, I bet we only pulled two, five, four, three double plays all year. And I looked it up and Crucky was right. They pulled five, two, five, four, three double plays all year and they won the National League pennant. How about that? That's the kind of thing you get from Crucky. You also get this because this is how almost every story starts with Crucky. He said, did I ever tell you about the time that I shot a deer in the hot tub? And I went, what? So Crucky, and with Crucky, with Crucky, you have to ask, Crucky, were you in the hot tub? Was the deer in the hot tub? Or were both of you in the hot tub? So he says, no, I was in the hot tub alone. I was a senior in high school. And he said, my shotgun is leaning up against the hot tub. And then he pauses and looks at me 
as if he expects me to say now, yeah, Crucky, that's where I keep my shotgun. He <laughs> stood up butt naked in the, in the hot tub and shot a deer. And that's the story. I got a hundred of those stories about Crucky. All of them are priceless. All of them just make you shake their head. And he also, of course, told me the story, which I can repeat, that in the minor leagues, uh, police came to his door and and like almost knocked the door down until he opened it up. And he said, what, officers, what's wrong? And he said, your, your roommate is a bank robber and we've we've come to get him. So while John Crook was playing in the minor leagues, he had no idea, but his roommate was a bank robber who eventually got caught. Only Crookie could tell that story. Oh my gosh. That wasn't what I was expecting when I said the bus stories, but I'll take that. Those are good. <laughs> I'm crying him over here. Well, um, one more bus story there. This was amazing. We had Michael Kadire of the Rockies at the time come on the bus with us. And Michael Kadire, if you don't know, was a very good player, great guy, and was a magician. He could do card tricks like I've never seen before. So he came on the bus with me and Crucky and did some card tricks for us on camera that if he had done them a thousand times, I still could have never figured out how he do that, how he did that. I was absolutely dazzled by his skill as a magician and that day <laughs> that day he told us a story when he was with the twins and Luis Castillo you remember the little second baseman who played for several teams joined the twins it was his first spring and Kadire goes to Luis Castillo's locker and shows him a magic trick and and Castillo was like so amazed that it it literally scared him and the next day, Kadire comes into the clubhouse and Luis Castillo has moved his locker across the locker room to get away from Michael Kadire because the, the trick he had played was so spooky that C Castillo was afraid of Michael Kadire and wanted to get away from him. That's how good the magic trick was. And those are the things that we learned on the bus with Crucky. That's oh, unreal. I um. You know, with we're getting we're getting close to our forty, but I wanted to get this question into you. you the impressions baseball players have made it famous to try to do the, the Tim Kurtzman impression. Who who does the best impressions of you? Well, they're all terrible because yeah. if that's the way I actually sound, uh, I need to either go get a new voice or a new job because that's ridiculous. But I'll tell you the whole story. It's long, but I'll make it as short yeah, as no. I can. Tito Francona, the most mischievous man in the world and the funniest person I've ever met in uniform in my life, worked with ESPN for one year. And he was on the bus tour with me when we went to see the Blue Jays. And he's standing there with me when Ricky Romero comes up to me, pitcher for the Blue Jays, and says, Tim, J.P. Aaron Sebia on our team does the greatest Tim Kirchin impression. You have to go let him do that for you. So Tito says, all right, let's go. We got to go see this. So now I'm standing in the middle of the clubhouse in Dunedin with literally 60 Blue Jays players surrounding me while J.P. Aaron Sebia does this impersonation of me. And it is so terrible that it is hysterically funny. And 60 guys, including Tito, are laughing their ass off at this. 
So Tito gets this great idea that we're going to ambush Tim. So he and Carl Ravitch, while I'm off writing a story somewhere, sit down and tape a little segment of pretending to be, you know, Tito says, we can't find Tim, but we found his replacement and they bring JP Aaron CB on and he does this ridiculous impersonation of me. And then when the live show begins, they ambush me with this, with this tape that I didn't know was coming. It was so funny. It was so awful. I laughed uproariously. And I just thought, oh my God, my career is over right here. He makes me look so stupid. But in the end, I realized this was good. Flattery is the the best form of flattery, I guess. Uh, Impersonation is the best form of flattery, whatever. So the next day we go to Blue Jays camp and Elliot Johnson, I mean, uh, Ray's camp and Elliot Johnson does me. And it's so funny. I can't help it. Then we go to Arizona and you know, Ryan Dempster, who's like a legitimate comedian, he does a back and forth impersonation imitating me asking questions to Harry Carey. So Harry Carey says, I can't impersonate him. He goes, so Tim, where do you get all those stats from? And then, he, and then he answers the question in my voice. This is how it goes. And then we, the last one was in Milwaukee. Tim Dillard, one of the funniest people of all time, breaks into a middle of a live interview with me, Ravi, and Aaron Boone. And he impersonates me, only he crouches down while he does the impersonation so he can be the same size as me. That was the spring training of impersonations. I I thought at the beginning, this is terrible for me. My credibility is going to be lost. But people in the business, including Shaughnessy, said, Tim, this is television gold. You need to keep doing that. And the kicker to it all is I finally went to J.P. Aaron C.B. and I said, please tell me that you impersonate a lot of people. Tell me that you can do a great Jack Nicholson. And he said, no, I can only impersonate you. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, geez, I've been crying since the 18-minute mark with your stories. Yeah. <laughs> with uh, with the end of our show, Tim, Kevin always asks a, a, a great question of our guests, and unless you had you had another one before that, Kevin, and I'm I'm looking forward to this answer. No, no, this is perfect, uh, perfect ending because uh, you know Tim's been so gracious with his time, and and Rick Vaughn, our friend, our PR director for the Orioles and the Rays through the years. He once said the best thing about Tim, why he was so successful, is because he feels the game, and that, and that's the truth, and you can see it. And and I think young writers can learn from that and understand the game's tough and everything else. It's it's not an easy game, but the question we always ask Tim, and we get some different answers because everybody looks at it a little bit differently. And I can't wait to hear your answer. But uh, and it's a real simple question. You take your time, to think about it. But uh, the answers are usually pretty good. What does a being a ball player? What does being a ball player mean to you, Tim Kirchian? What does being a ball player mean to you? You mean me being a ball player? It could, you could take it any way you want. You being a ball player, what a ball player means to you in general, just which way? What what does that term being a ball player mean to you? Well, being a baseball player means that you are playing the hardest game in the world to play. I try to tell people this and very few people listen to me because I maintain this is the hardest game in the world to play. This is golf only with 
tremendous athleticism involved and a legitimate danger and fear of the ball. It is my wish that every average fan gets to do what we do, Kevin and, and, and Dave, stand right next to a major leaguer throwing a bullpen in spring training just to understand the incomprehensible speed of the ball. They will have an all-new appreciation for standing in against somebody when they see 95 to 100 being thrown from 10 feet away. I want every average fan to take one at bat in the major leagues against anyone, and they will walk away saying, I want no part of this. This is terrifying. I want every average fan to stand even with third base and let, from days past, anybody, Gary Sheffield, whistle one past your ear. You will have a new appreciation of what it's like to try to catch a ball that is hit. To be a ball player means you better be as tough as they come because this is a hard game played by hard men. And I just don't think we truly appreciate the degree of difficulty. And in my very small playing days, the only thing that I came out of that truly understanding is how hard the game is to play. And I, so when I see Derek Jeter make a play or Mike Trout make a play or anybody make a play, I like to think I understand how difficult that play is because I could never make that play. And that's all I wanted to do growing up. So I hope that we all understand that when we watch a baseball game on TV, it is way harder in person than, than people actually believe. I have friends of mine who actually think they could put a ball in play against a major league pitcher. I, I have to say, you've got to be kidding me. I did the Levitard show a few years ago. I love the Levitard show. I love all those guys. They're hilarious. They're great. But they called me on once to settle a bet, okay? They called me on out of the blue to say, all four of us on the show, these four knucklehead guys, we all think we could get a bunt down in a major league game against Garrett Cole. Do you think we could? And I had to say... 100 at-bats for all four of you. None of you guys gets a bunt down against Garrett Cole. You have no chance. So to me, when I think of a ball player, I think of hard men playing hard a hard game, the hardest game in the world, and they deserve all our respect for dealing with, among other things, the danger and the courage that it takes to stand in there against somebody throwing that hard and trying to catch a ball, hit that hard. That's ball player to me. Great answer. Great show, Tim. Can't appreciate, uh, tell you how much we appreciate the time and uh, um, just keep it rolling. You got to, uh, you can see baseball keeps you young. Well, (laughs) I love the game, fellas. I don't care how corny it sounds. This is the primary language spoken in my house growing up. I was four years old when I was hooked. I'm now 66 and I love it just as much as ever. And I really enjoy speaking to two people, Dave and Kevin, we have a shared love of the game. Um, that, that That's what makes me really happy. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, Tim, thanks so much for giving us your time today. And um, just our fans are going to love this. 13,200 subscribers now. Uh, we're in 66 different countries from grassroots all the way up to front offices trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And, and you gave us a great show today. We appreciate that, um, bringing it to us at 9 o'clock on a Monday morning. And 
Kevin, thanks again for all you do for us and uh, to our listeners to continue to read Kevin at Ball 9. They do a wonderful job there. He turns out two masterpieces every week um, for Ball 9. Continue to follow them online. And then to our audience, again, download, listen, like, subscribe. Follow us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast network is. And continue to engage us on social media. We're getting back to everybody. Um, we don't care how long it takes. We'll, we appreciate our fans. We appreciate the support you give us. We'll keep turning out great shows for you. And to my two two Hall of Famers here, Kevin and Tim, thanks again for the efforts you put in today. And thanks for what you two do for baseball. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Kevin.